0: Looking at a story that's a continuation from last week. If you were here last week, we looked at the first part of uh, 1 Samuel 15. And uh, in that, uh, the beginning of the chapter, King Saul was given a special mission from the Lord against uh, the Amalekites. And a part of that mission was that he was supposed to kill all of the livestock of the Amalekites. And he was not uh, allowed to indulge himself and take the livestock of the Amalekites. And well, it turns out that along with his soldiers, Saul disobeys the Lord and they keep the best of the livestock for themselves to feast with. And so today we're reading uh, the story of how this action from King Saul resulted in the Lord taking the kingdom from Saul. And so we're going to read about that together. I know these are some longer passages from, uh, from 1 Samuel, but you can follow along right there in your bulletin. 1 Samuel 15, uh, starting in verse 10, this is the word of the Lord. And Samuel uh, uh, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, uh, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I might bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel uh, turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to the uh, neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also uh, the, the glory of Israel will not lie or, uh, or have, regret, have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me, Now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul uh, went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me just make one comment. I know there's that line at the end about Samuel killing Agag that uh, I'm not gonna be talking about in this sermon. If, if you weren't here last week, we had a sermon on violence in the Bible. And if you're interested in that, you can go uh, on the website or on our podcast and, and, and listen to that. But um, uh, we're gonna be looking at a different topic today. So uh, would you join me in praying? Father in heaven, uh, we pray for your word uh, to be a light to teach us uh, who you are, who we are, and that we might um, uh, come to you and listen and come to you with faith, come to you with obedience, that you might uh, uh, change our lives by the power of your word and the work of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, one of the most uh, fascinating storylines of uh, 1 Samuel that we're uh, studying together is the psychology of King Saul. King Saul is one of the main uh, characters in this story, and he's an emotional character. And we're going to find out as we go along that he gets depressed, and he gets envious of of David, who's another character. He gets extremely angry. And in this passage that I just read, we get uh, the first glimpse of Saul's personality, and in particular... Saul's capacity for self deception. Saul's capacity for self deception. What is self deception? Self deception means lying to yourself. It means not being honest with yourself about who you really are. And it means not being willing or even able to see your own flaws and your own sins. And uh, self deception is a deeply common part of human life. It's in our families, it's in our workplaces, uh, it's in churches. And so uh, this morning, I'd like to point out four components about how uh, self-deception works in our lives. And these are four things that I want to point out from this passage. This is what they are, is that first, self-deception begins by disobeying God. Second, self-deception grows by making ourselves look good. Third, self-deception deepens by making others look bad. And fourth, self-deception is only cured by Jesus. So it begins when we disobey God. And then second, it grows by us trying to make ourselves look good. And then it deepens by making others look bad. And the only cure for self-deception is Jesus. So four really insightful things from this passage that we're going to talk about together today. So first, the first point today is self-deception begins by disobeying God. Self-deception begins by disobeying God. And you see how this passage begins in verse 10 there. How it says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So Saul's self-deception begins, uh, self-deception begins when we do something we know that is wrong. And uh, the reason why of course self-deception has to begin with disobedience, is because why would you need to lie to yourself about anything unless you knew that you had betrayed something that you knew was right? And uh, that's the case with Saul in this passage. uh, It's a significant act of disobedience as the king, but I'll tell you, this happens in smaller ways a thousand times in our lives. Let me just give you a Small, everyday example of how self-deception works, okay? So uh, my wife and I, we had uh, five kids uh, in five years. This was right around the time that this, this church was starting. We had uh, our fourth and fifth kids were twins. And when our children were babies, uh, um, by far the most intense arguments that we had happened at 1.30 in the morning when a baby wouldn't sleep. And, uh, and I clearly remember how these arguments regularly went, is we'd be sleeping, and a baby starts crying in the middle of the night. And I would wake up in here, and I would pretend to be sleeping. (laughs) I would pretend that I didn't hear the baby. And Shannon would be sitting there not moving. She seemed to be sleeping as well. And so what begins to happen in my mind is I start to think, she is seriously pretending to be asleep while there's a baby crying. Of course, I'm pretending to be asleep while the baby's crying as well. So how could you possibly justify getting mad? How could I possibly justify getting mad at her for pretending to sleep while the baby's crying when I'm doing the exact same thing? Well, uh, the only way is I need to find a reason why I'm justified in pretending to be asleep and she is not. And the only way to do that is to first start listing off in my mind, these are the reasons why I'm, I'm better than her. And I start thinking, you know, I'm a pastor. It's a really important job. And I have a really important sermon coming up that I, I probably need this, this half hour of sleep right now for that really important sermon. And then along with the list of what, my goodness and my importance, there's also a list of her flaws that really have nothing to do with babies. You know, I might be like, she... I think overspent on the groceries this month and she really was in a mood today and, w- and so there's a list that's happening and there's this growing thing and so finally when we wake up and we start having a conversation, I am primed with a vision of my own grandeur and a whole list of her flaws and this is of course silly and ridiculous uh, but this is a small picture of what self-deception is. The whole thing began with an unwillingness for me to get up and serve. And why would I start going on this list of how good I am and how bad she is unless I had some sense that I really shouldn't be pretending I'm asleep and I should be willing to serve. And uh, there's a book that I read several several years ago called uh, Leadership and Self-Deception. And the whole book basically says this little dynamic that I'm describing about, you know, us in the middle of the night, that little dynamic, it happens in workplaces, it happens in families, it happens in churches, where we do something that we know that is wrong and we have to make ourselves feel justified and feel right. And so we enter into a state of self-deception and self-justification. And when we are in that state, we are unable to see our own flaws, it makes us highly critical of other people, it makes us unable to grow and change and learn, and it makes us proud and arrogant. That's what self-deception is. And these are some of the exact dynamics that begin to emerge in King Saul in this passage. And so the first thing that we learn is that self-deception begins when we disobey, we do something that we know is wrong. Okay, but then it moves into a second phase, okay? And the second point is that self-deception grows by making ourselves look good. We have a need to make ourselves look good. And so in this story, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, and he's uh, saying, Saul has disobeyed God. And does Saul know that he's disobeyed the Lord? He knows. Deep down, he knows. Just like deep down, I knew. And, uh, and though he's convinced himself that he's actually done good in honoring God and not disobedience, what is the first thing that Saul does uh, after his disobedience? Look at verse 12. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So Saul makes a monument for himself. And, uh, and you might think, what? Well, are you overcompensating for something? You made a huge monument to celebrate uh, yourself? There's a growing sense of Saul's own sense of grandeur. Why does he need to say that to himself so much? And so Samuel uh, uh, he needs everyone to know how good he is. So Samuel is looking for Saul, and finally he finds him. in verse 13 it says, "And Samuel said to Saul, uh, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord." He says, "Let me make a monument to myself, and then let me tell you how obedient and godly I have been." And uh, self-deception always involves an inflating of our own virtue. In our minds, the good things we've done, we expand them and grow them in our minds of, how, of their importance and of their goodness, especially compared to other people. And we create a narrative in our minds about how good we are. And the more we try to cover our sin by telling ourselves how good we are, the more blind we, come, we become. And I'll tell you, this is particularly a problem for religious people. Religious people like us. Because religious people love to use religious activities to tell themselves how virtuous they are to cover character flaws that God really cares about. You know, you imagine that you, uh, you go to church every Sunday, but you never apologize to your spouse. I mean, that, that's, that happens. People could come here every Sunday... And think, well, I'm devoted to the Lord. I worship God every Sunday. And even confess sins in this worship service and then never go into our homes and actually admit to other people, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Or, uh, or maybe uh, someone who reads their Bible every day. They know a ton of theology. They could tell you at what chapter of the Bible every verse is in. And yet they're the least dependable person to work with. And, you know, the actual neighbors that you're with every day are in your workplace. And you actually serve them by doing your work well. And so you know your Bible very well. And you think of how pious you are and how righteous you are because of all the religious activities that we do. And yet, there are deep character flaws that we're just covering up with our uh, supposed piety. And how does Saul answer, uh, um, answer that? Oh, oh, sorry. And this is exactly what happens in this passage. Samuel questions Saul. And Saul says, I've done, I've done everything the Lord asked. And in verse 14, Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my, in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So he says, Oh, you killed all the animals? Why do I hear some sheep making noise? And how does uh, Saul answer that? Look at these incredible words. He says in verse 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. To sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction. He said, The reason I disobeyed is because I wanted to honor God. I wanted to worship. Now, what we have to understand is when, you know, back in that day, if you brought an animal for a peace offering to the Lord, guess who gets to eat the animal? you do. You basically have a feast. That's how the Lord is. He says, bring your animals and we're going to have a feast together. So they're like, oh, we're going to take the best animals from these people that we were supposed to, God was bringing a judgment on, and we're going to make ourselves rich, and we're going to have a feast, and we're going to justify it because it was an act of worship. We're going to use our religion to cover our disobedience. And Samuel responds with these important words. Verse 22 He says, "'Has the Lord as great delight "'in burnt offerings and sacrifices "'as in obeying the voice of the Lord? "'Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice "'and to listen than the fat of rams. "'The Lord cares far more deeply "'about the true transformation of our character "'than the external appearance of goodness and religion.'" This is what the Lord really cares about. Self-deception grows by trying to make ourselves look good. And we do that by creating a narrative of our own grandeur, but, uh, 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 but even using religion to cover and to justify our character flaws. So we try to make ourselves look good. But there's another side to that coin. It's not enough to just make ourselves look good, but this is the third thing that we learn about self-deception. We don't just inflate our own virtues but also, in order to justify ourselves, the third thing about self-deception is self-deception deepens by making others look bad. So we not only inflate our own virtues, but we in also inflate other people's flaws and make them bigger than probably they really are. And it's like when I'm lying in bed thinking about lists list. My poor wife who's been taking care of five kids all day and I got a list of her flaws that are growing in my mind uh, and this is only to justify myself because I need to make a list of her flaws. And this generally looks like blame shifting. That's, uh, that's exactly what Saul does in this passage. You see in verse, verse 19, Samuel says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, listen to the list. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag the king of Amalek and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Here are all the the things of obedience that I've done. And then, but what comes next? Verse 21, but the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. What he does, he blames all his soldiers. He says, let me tell you all the things that I've done right, but the thing that was done wrong, it wasn't me, it was my soldiers. Um, They are the disobedient ones. And there is something so deep in us that wants to do this, to say they are the failures and I am the one who did what was right. Right? And you have to ask a question, why is this such a part of us to do that? Why is it so important to us to inflate our own virtues and to inflate other people's flaws? We know it's awful. We don't like what other people do. Why would we do it? And the reason is because you and I were made to be judged by God. And whether you are a Christian or not, you know deep down the question, am I good, is one of the most burning questions in your life. The question, am I good, is driving so many of our relationships. We wanna know, do you think that I'm good? To our spouse, do you think that I'm good? In my workplace, what's driving my pursuit of uh, you know, promotions and success is the question, am I good? My whole s- self-image is driven by this question, am I good? And Christianity says, That question can only finally be answered by Jesus Christ. When his blood on the cross has washed away our sins and his love has embraced us, then we can stop self-justifying. We don't need to justify ourselves anymore. We can walk out of self-deception. We can walk into the light and say, I have nothing to hide. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm loved. So I can look honestly at myself and others. And if we don't do that, the effects on our relationships around us will be severe. It'll affect our families. It'll affect our church life. It'll affect our work life. It'll affect our friendships. And actually, this book that I read, uh, uh, Leadership and Self-Deception, makes an interesting observation that when we are justifying ourselves, it's not only that we look for other people's flaws. It's that we want other people to be flawed. Because it serves the narrative that I'm the good one. And this is a quote from the book. This is what it says Whenever we are deceiving ourselves, we have a need that is met by others' poor behavior. And that's an incredible insight. We have a need, we need other people to behave badly. It's like when you get that juicy bit of gossip and you find out, oh, I knew that person had problems. And we love that. Why is that? It's because of our self justification. It makes us feel better, and it makes us feel good. And so our self-deception encourages more poor behavior in others, even if that behavior makes our lives difficult. And so three things that we learn about self-deception, it begins with our own disobedience, going and betraying what we know is right. And once we do that, instead of just confessing and admitting and turning to the Lord for grace, we begin to inflate our own virtues, try to make ourselves look good, and we inflate the, uh, the flaws of other people to make them look bad so that we can answer that question for ourselves, am I good? And so how do we break out of this cycle? And that's our final point, is that self-deception is only cured by Jesus. Self-deception is only cured by Jesus. And you'll notice that, that great phrase from Samuel, verse 17, where Samuel said, Though, uh, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And what Samuel's saying here is, is you need to see the impact of your decisions are making on other people. You know, Saul, you think, oh, I'm just some guy, you know, I'm, I, you know. I'm just trying to do the best I can. I'm not any more significant than anyone else. And, and Samuel says to him, no, you are the king of Israel. You need to feel the gravity of what you do. And that's the same thing with us. No, you're not just some guy. Maybe you're a spouse. You're a father. You're a mother. You're a teacher. You're a boss. You're a fellow church member. You you have a ministry in people's lives. You're a home group leader or a discipleship group leader. You have weight and gravity in people's lives. And in this passage... Saul does begin to see what he has done, and his eyes are open. And the first time that he says sorry, he says to Samuel, oh, please forgive me. Let, let's go worship together the Lord, and it'll make everything right. And Samuel says, no, it's too late. You've been rejected as king. And you might think that sounds graceless to say, well, you sinned, and you're no longer king anymore. But what, is, what does Samuel say there in verse Verse 27. He says, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And the promise to Saul is we need a better king. And in the book of 1 Samuel, it's gonna turn out that this is King David. Um, But even King David, we're gonna find out, himself was deeply flawed. Uh, David's family was deeply flawed. David's son Solomon was deeply flawed. And all the kings that were gonna come all had their flaws. And ultimately, the answer to this, the king who is better than Saul is Jesus. And for all of us, the way to be cured of our self-deception is through the one who is better than us. Jesus alone is pure in heart. He doesn't disobey God's commands. He doesn't inflate the sins of other people. Jesus speaks the truth of God's word in a way that pierces our souls and he shows us who we really are so that we can turn to him. But also, Jesus doesn't blame shift. He doesn't accuse his people and cast on them, they're the ones that sin. What does Jesus do? He takes the punishment of his people's sins upon himself on the cross He doesn't blame shift. He takes responsibility even for sinners and and pays for their sins on the cross. And when we know that there is a king who's better than us, who loves us, we are free to walk into the light. We're free to stop trying to justify ourselves and know that the only justification for our lives comes from him. And so in this story, how does Saul end? Where does that lead him in verse 31? So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. When our self-deception is cured by Jesus, it leads us to the humility of bowing before God and saying, you alone are king, you alone are the righteous one. And so self-deception begins when we uh, disobey God's commands, and the only way that we know how to deal with that is to try to make ourselves look good and others look bad, So ultimately, the only cure is to come into the light of Jesus who shows us who we really are and gives us grace so that we can finally be honest with ourselves and deeply be changed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for uh, these stories in 1 Samuel that are so insightful about our own minds, our own souls, our own sin, Lord, we see ourselves in Saul, and Lord, we thank you that there is one who is better than us, a a better king, who is righteous and pure and loving and honest, and so, Lord, may the light of Jesus shine on us that we might live in the truth and live in his grace, we pray in Christ's name, amen.